Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We often hear that we live in a post-industrial world, yet all of those consumer goods we in the world love so much are made in factories. Factories that at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution did not always represent the best of working conditions. Yet today we somehow, out of nostalgia, I guess, romanticize them and long for the big shoulders of the industrial heartland. Certainly today things are still produced in factories. However, they are increasingly either located offshore or are more and more manned by robots. Auto workers from the 50s and 60s would be shocked walking through the factory that turns out Teslas today. Any similarity is almost purely coincidental. Yet in the minds of many, these factories represent something much more than just places to make things. They are a symbol of another time and place, but one that we can still learn from, even in the digital age. And few know more about this than my guest, Joshua Freeman. Joshua Freeman is a distinguished professor of history at Queens College and the Graduate Center of City University of New York. His previous books include American Empire and Working Class New York. It is my pleasure to welcome Joshua Freeman here to talk about Behemoth, a history of the factory and the making of the modern world. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. Ah, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. What is it about factories today that we have kind of romanticized? How did, how did that happen? Well, I think we look back to an era in which the life that factories made possible for workers uh, was in some ways uh, much better looking than what we see today. You know, it, it, we look, I think what we remember about the factory uh, is that it was a path of upward mobility for so many Americans, a, a kind of a sure job. You could come out of high school, you get a job in the local factory, life looked better each year than it did the year before, and your kid did better than you did. So that's, I think, part of that nostalgia. It, it was the transformation that the factory, particularly the unionized factory, uh, made in people's lives. I think the other thing was there was a kind of... Uh, symbol of of ingenuity of, of human prowess you know there was a almost a kind of promethean you know seizing from the gods you know the magic of of, of production of 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 transforming materials into these magical objects and and uh, all that had a very powerful place in the american consciousness and when we look at it through the lens of today a little bit about the fact that, that certainly there are still factories and, and goods are still made in, in things that are called factories, but how remarkably different it is today. Well, it is and it isn't. You know, I think if you look at it from the U.S. point of view, uh, it's remarkably different. You know, even uh, in my own lifetime, when I was young, 24% of workers in the United States worked in manufacturing. Now we're talking 8%. Uh, it's a much smaller component. But globally, we are still pretty much near the peak of uh, manufacturing as an enterprise. The percentage of the global workforce that works in industry uh, is something around 30%, which is close to what its peak w has, has been. So globally, we are not in a post-industrial society. You know? And if you look at the factories those people work in, some of them are like you're describing Telsa. You know, they are completely different, highly automated, you know, s you know, squeaky clean, very different. But, you know, 
Uh, a lot of people are wearing clothes that were made in factories in Bangladesh that look pretty similar to a sweatshop on the Lower East Side of New York 120 years ago. It's interesting that it recently in an interview, the CEO of Foxconn was talking about the fact that more and more they even want to go to automation and robots and that, that they've laid off you know significant amounts of their workforce in terms of, of AI and automation. Yes. That's true, but actually that's not the whole story. Um, Over the last decade, Foxconn has introduced robots in some of their Chinese factories, but they've also built huge new complexes which uh, have literally hundreds of thousands of workers producing products like iPhones and other smartphones, laptops, tablets. Um, So they have not turned away from the mass employment model of factory production. They're kind of following two tracks, but the bigger track still is having people on that assembly line making the neat stuff that you and I all enjoy. Talk about that mass model of production and how important it is in understanding American history, really. Well, I think not just U.S. history, world history. You know, about 300 years ago, we had the first things that kind of looked like factories of today, uh, first in England, in the textile industry, and then the U.S., and they were a leap in scale. You know, I mean, it was very rare to have more than a dozen people together making stuff, you know, Uh, and these early factories had hundreds and very quickly even thousands of workers, uh, so that they had a kind of intensity and a efficiency that made it possible to produce standardized goods at low costs that in turn then made possible a great rise in the standards of living. And these factories got bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, The peak in the U.S. was the Ford River Rouge plant that had over 100,000 workers in the 1940s. We've seen factories in the U.S. get smaller since then, but worldwide we've seen ever bigger factories. Mm -hmm. And as we look at these ever bigger factories, not all of them had the best of working conditions. You spend a lot of time talking about factories in the, in the former Soviet Union, in fact. Sure. I mean, look, one of the things about the factory that really struck me as I, as I tried to reconstruct its history was how much its kind of uh, wondrous efficiency and productivity have been linked so often to exploitation, whether it was children in the early English factories, in Soviet factories, there were often prisoners that were used not so much inside the factories as factory workers, but to build the factories that were built under you know, extraordinarily crude conditions by forced labor with many workers dying. Um, uh, even in the United States, you know, although we never saw those extremes, uh, factory labor was was associated with exploitation, with high uh, levels of of occupational disease, of of accidents, of low wages, of poverty, uh, through much of the 19th century and even into the early 20th century. There was never, although, I mean, you talk about some some writings of the time, but once industrialization became as entrenched as it was, there was never any turning back. There was really never a sense of going back to a time of sort of small craft. You know, I think you're right. I mean, there were certainly people who advocated it, uh, and there were things like the arts and crafts movement in England, which, you know, produced actually beautiful objects uh, and, and, and argued for the virtues of craftsmanship in an old-fashioned sense. But as a practical way to meet the needs of most people, not a kind of select group of 
connoisseurs, uh, there has not been a replacement for the factory. And if we want to live in a very object-rich world, which most of us have chosen to do, you know, uh, we haven't found another way of doing that. Um, uh, we may have exported where that takes place, but the basic system has remained the same. The other thing that has changed is that parts are made, pieces of things that are assembled in factories are not made in one centralized place, that that's widely dispersed. Yes, I think that is true. You know, there was a long time when there was a push for, you know, what economists call vertical integration, you know, and the extreme example was Ford, who literally made his own steel, he made his own glass, he made his own parts uh, that were assembled into cars like the Model T and the Model A. Today, if you are buying a, a Telsa, you know, parts are made all over the place. In your, your smartphone, there may be chips that were made in Malaysia. There may be chips that were made even in the United States. The glass for the screen was made someplace else. Uh, the lower cost of transportation and the tremendous advances in tracking all this stuff, you know, with barcodes and computers, makes it possible to have these, you know, what people call supply chains, which are very complex uh, and, and um, do represent, as you say, like a, a change from the way things were done. In, in older factories. When we look at factories today, and you've probably looked at, at so many, talk a little bit about how workers view the factory today versus the way they viewed them in the earlier days of the Industrial Revolution. Well, you know, the funny thing is that, that, that there have been big changes, but a lot of similarities. You know, um, for a lot of workers, particularly in places like Asia, you know, the factory may be a way to escape a uh, rural situation, uh, maybe of poverty or at least of limited opportunity, of oppressive family relations, you know, and you, you go off to the city and, and you work in the factory. And, and, and often those workers find the, the jobs hard, the conditions harsh, but it is a kind of window into a different world. Um, and, and that was very similar for Lowell, Massachusetts in the 1830s, as, as you see in Shenzhen, China today. You know, on the other hand, you know, uh, some factories uh, are, are really low, you know, low, low road, you know, very, very uh, oppressive conditions, and people take those jobs out of desperation. But we also have highly automated factories, you know, some in the United States, which... Uh, uh, these jobs don't require much physical labor anymore. Some of them are creative, some of them more repetitious, but they they you know yield um, good incomes, you know, and, and and sometimes some real challenges. So there's an enormous variety, and and there's both continuity and change over the years. One of the things you talk about, particularly as you look through these sort of seven models that are that are part of Behemoth that there really are a lot of similarities in, in the history of factories. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's really striking. You know, if you see a picture of, of the first factory I talk about, it's a, it's a, a silk mill. It made silk thread from, from, from the cocoons of silkworms. It was in England. Uh, it was built in 1721, and it's really the first modern uh, type of factory. You look at a picture of that, and, and you would say right away, oh, that's a factory. You know, it, 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 there's a 
family resemblance to factories you could still find operating all over the United States. So uh, the basic model sprung up pretty quickly. You know, the idea that you have a lot of people working on machinery that's externally powered, whether by water or electricity or coal, uh, in coordinated tasks, that idea developed quickly and, and, and really fundamentally is still the model of the factory these three centuries later. When you look at those factories, I mean, they really did change the world in some profound ways. I mean, the world was never the same after those factories. Yeah, they had requirements. You know, to run a factory, you needed certain stuff. I mean, give you a funny example, like time. You know, before factories, people operated by task, by season, by sunlight. You know, they woke up when the, you know when the sun was there. They worked until the job was done. Um, a factory, you can't do that. You know, everyone's got to show up at the same time. It's coordinated activity. So suddenly, you have need a different time sense, and you need things like clocks. You know, early uh, factory buildings always had these clock towers and bell towers to ring a bell to wake people up. People didn't have watches and clocks. So you know, something as intimate as your internal sense of time gets changed by by the factory and, and the discipline of, you know, having to stay in that place, whether you want to be there or not, you know, for whatever the number of hours are. Um, just one example. But, 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 you know, in terms of uh, uh, transportation needs, the, the urbanization tremendously stimulated by the factory, and, of course, uh, the way we live using the products created by the factory, um, something like the spread of cotton clothes. I mean, I'm wearing, you know, blue jeans right now. Mm-hmm. You know, cotton I take for for granted, but that was an unusual item uh, before the first uh, cotton textile mills developed in England in the uh, 1700s. One of the other things that was kind of universal in all of these factories was a certain monotony that went with the jobs. Absolutely. And, you know, some people have argued that, you know, the, the, the factory reverses the relationship of the person and the tool. You know, when you're a craftsperson, you know, you use tools to kind of extend your power and your creativity. In the factory, the person almost becomes an extension of the machine, not the other way around, because your activities are dictated and paced by uh, this machinery, which, is, which you're not controlling, but it's externally powered. And that can be extraordinarily tiring and monotonous. I mean, they had kids working in these early cotton factories who had to look for broken threads and tie them together in the spinning process. And, and, and basically, there'd be a one-minute cycle, and every minute, they'd have to sort of look and, and dash in there and tie these threads over and over and over again. And, and that kind of uh, monotony and boredom, at the same time, attentiveness, uh, could be really uh, mind-numbing. And, and, you know, many people uh, hated these jobs. You know, when they introduced the assembly line at Ford, uh, workers just quit in droves. They, they, they just couldn't stand it. And, and, and it took a doubling of wages for the Ford Motor Company to be able to create a stable workforce. Uh, you know, finally, they paid enough and people put up with it. But people didn't like those jobs at all. Talk a little bit about the impact the union movement had on factories. Well, you know, unions in the United States go way back. I mean, they really go back to the almost the founding of our country itself, but, but they were primarily among crafts workers and, and 
Uh, although there were lots of efforts to organize factory workers, it's not really till the 1930s that you get the big breakthroughs and, and, and industries like Steel Nord get unionized. And that changes everything because uh, for workers, they had so little voice and, and felt so uh, much the kind of victims of a kind of autocratic regime. And now unionization gives them some say and some protection. And of course, it gives them the opportunity to share a greater percentage of these marvelous efficiencies, you know, marvelous productivity of the factory. And that really lays the basis for the tremendous improvement after World War II in the standard of living for so many ordinary Americans. And, and unions like the United Auto Workers set benchmarks for other employers and other workers. So their achievements, you know, in terms of income and then things like health insurance and pensions um, were things that other companies felt the need to, to follow. So the, the combination of the big efficient factory and unionization, in my mind, really was the key to that kind of golden era that people are so nostalgic about. You know, when, when, when people say, make America great again, I think that's the image that a lot of them have in, in, in their mind. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know the, 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 the smoke coming out of the, the prosperous factory and the workers leaving at the end of the day, you know, uh, with, with a nice, you know, paycheck in their back pocket. Right. And the other part of this story, which you talk about, is the reality of these factories that f from the time they open, we really they really need to be thinking about closing because they become outmoded. And as time has gone on, they become outmoded even faster. Absolutely. You know, uh, factories look so uh, solid. You know, that's, right. that's, that's, that's what they look like. But they have a life cycle. And, and, and the factory system has been with us for 300 years. But we have no factories that have lasted 300 years, you know, and, and, and these days, as you say, the, the lifespan is often in, in decades. And we have seen all across America what happens when the factory reaches the end of its life cycle and the company moves on and builds a new plant somewhere else. And we, you know, the worst cases, places like Flint, Michigan or Camden, New Jersey, leave social wreckage that lasts for, for, for decades, you know, uh, 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 of unemployment, of poverty, of, of toxicity in the, in, in the water, in the air, uh, and all the kind of social ills that eventually begin to develop from drug abuse to alcoholism and so forth. So, you know, uh, the post-factory situation, particularly in towns that were kind of one-industry towns, is a huge problem. And it's not just a U.S. problem. You see it in parts of Europe. These days, you're now even seeing it in parts of Asia, for example, in northern China. So, you know, when we think about attracting factories, we have to think, you know, to do it in a way that is not going to just repeat a cycle, which for the next generation is going to kind of leave a wreck behind. One of the things that's happened, though, is that that cycle has speeded up dramatically. Yeah, I was quite struck by this. You see this particularly in China. Like in, in, in southern China, the areas near Hong Kong, which were the first areas to open up to outside investment and, and outside-owned manufacturing uh, companies like Foxconn, those areas have already peaked and, and, and companies are already closing because what you begin to see is, you know, they, they, they develop by and profit by exploiting very low wages. You know, workers are eager for jobs and not used to this system. But over time, uh, their protests and reform efforts push up wages and, and, and often land prices also go up in these areas and new competitors pop up. 
who have even more efficient, you know, uh, new, new machinery and, and new systems. So a lot of these factories, you know, they can reinvest, but often they, they move on. In China, you see factories moving to central China, where there are lower wages um, and, and, and lower land costs to, to sort of start the cycle all over. There are even now Chinese uh, companies which are beginning to set up manufacturing uh, enterprises in Africa. You know, there's a company, I, I love this, that makes Ivanka Trump's shoes. Uh, it's a Chinese shoe company, and they have moved a lot of their production to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where the wages are way below what you find in China. So, you know, we may say, oh, the Chinese have stolen our jobs, but now you're going to see Chinese workers saying, you know, um, African countries have stolen our jobs. You know, they're making the shoes now, not us. So it's a cycle which seems to go over and over again. The other part of this, and, and this adds to this, this romantic notion that we touched on before, is those fact, these huge factories that kind of came with their own amenities, with, with restaurants and with, with all sorts of things that were part of, of the factory. Yeah, this you know, this started in the very beginning in part because the earliest factories tended to use water power and they had to be along rivers that you know, have a pretty good drop. And and those places tended to be underdeveloped, you know, undeveloped. They were rural areas, so you had to build housing for workers, you had to you know, develop uh, stores and systems to feed them, churches, schools, so you got these kind of factory towns uh in England and and, and similarly uh in, in parts of the United States. Then the extreme of this was in the Soviet Union, where this was seen as an opportunity to, to create a kind of new socialist way of life. You know, the factory would bring with it, you know, the first glimpses of, of what a socialist or communist society would be. So, you know, there were often uh, very experimental efforts at communal housing, many social benefits and facilities linked to the factory itself. You know, you might get your housing through the faculty, you get your health through the factory, health care, you know, social activities, you know, they sponsor teams, that sort of stuff. And, and you still see that today in China. Uh, and these are not government-owned plants, but like Foxconn, uh, in their complexes, they have dormitories, they have cafeterias. One of the big factories has a bridal store because you know, so many of the workers are young women that you know, uh, are planning on marriage. They have uh, cyber cafes. They have sports facilities. So they really are all-encompassing worlds. What's remarkable is that that same pattern has found its way into these large campuses in Silicon Valley. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, you're right. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's no longer just the factory. And, of course, these things, you know, in some ways are kind of a modern replacement for the factory. You know, factories used to display themselves. They would be celebrated, you know, as, as architecturally innovative, as sort of symbols of a company and its future. Um, today, you don't see that as much. But you do see companies, for example, like Apple with right. its new headquarters, you know, who use the the, 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 the the architecture, the the physical layout, uh the social benefits of their 
employment site, you know, as an advertisement for the company. You know, this shows, you know, we're at the cutting edge. We're the most advanced. We're, we're, we're kind of a vision of the new society. You know, that used to be the role of the factory. And I think, you know, that's been displaced. And, and, and these tech companies are really at the forefront. So you're right. You know, new, like Google has a huge headquarters here in New York, you know, and right. uh, I am told that its cafeteria is just wonderful. So, you know, they've, <laughs> they've kind of picked up and refined this model. Are there many new, fa- in the U.S., are there many new factories being built today? Sure, there are some. Uh, you know, for example, uh, Hyundai and Toyota just uh, announced they're building a factory in, uh, in, in Alabama that, that, that's going to be a, a big factory, and they're getting something like $360 million in subsidies from the state to help build it. Uh, uh, so that's a very traditional kind of a thing, an auto factory. Um, we you know, tend to see in the U.S., uh, factories where the wage uh, costs are, are a smaller percentage of the total costs than than some of the factories abroad, because our wage rates compared to you know developing countries are pretty high. So uh, you know they tend to be things which you have a fair amount of automation, or things where shipping costs are pretty expensive, or some companies like GE I think have come around to the philosophy that the design of products is improved by the proximity to the place where they're actually manufactured, that there's a feedback loop, you know, that you get mm-hmm. from, from building it, from the workers and the engineers who build it, who go back to the designers and the marketers. So they've brought back some production of appliances to the U.S. So, so yeah, it's not as if U.S. Fact manufacturing is dead. And, of course, we have a lot of niche manufacturing of kind of high-end specialized products, you know, even in cities like New York or San Francisco, you still see some of that. So um, we have a manufacturing sector, and, and uh, I don't think we're ever going to be back at 24% of our workforce in it, but, but I can see continued growth of manufacturing in the U.S. It's interesting, the economics of some of these subsidies that a lot of states are putting forth and whether or not it really pays off in the long run. Well, I, I agree. I mean, Foxconn, you know, put itself up for bid in a sense. You know, they said, we're going to build a factory in the U.S. and, you know, we'll build it where we get a good deal. Wisconsin's offered them $3 billion of subsidies for one factory. Is that the best investment? I, I'm not so sure. You know, I mean, maybe it makes more sense to invest in things like um, education, vocational training, infrastructure. Uh, affordable housing that would create an environment where many kinds of businesses, including manufacturing, could thrive and would benefit from those public subsidies rather than throwing all your chips into, you know, uh, in this case, a chip maker, or this is actually, I think it's a, I think it's actually a a screen maker that Foxconn is going to build, you know, um, because, you know, what if it leaves? You know, what, what, what happens? What do you get for your $3 billion then? So, uh, I'm skeptical, and I really think it's terrible when U.S. states compete against each other to, uh, you know, uh, lure factories from one state to another. I mean, how as a country are we benefiting from that? You know, why does that help us if our taxpaying uh, money goes to, to, to simply, you know, moving the pieces around the United States? That seems really uh, very uh, short-term thinking. To right. Me. I mean, the other the other part of it, even with those factories that don't leave, it is a safe bet that over time, given technology today, that they will require less and less workers in all of these factories. 
Yeah, I think that's particularly true in the U.S. You know, you, you could, there's still places in the world where wages are so low that it's cheaper to use people than to pay to, 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 uh, to, to automate. And, you know, you see that particularly, for example, in the garment industry, but even some kinds of the assembly side of electronics. Uh, you see that in, in, in making shoe wear. But, um, you know, clearly the trend is introducing uh, uh, more automation and, and you know, Introducing automation does generate some jobs, making the, the robots, programming the robots, but the net trend is clearly towards job loss, and I think we need to think about, as a society, you know, how can we take advantage of that? I mean, after all, if you step back, it's, it's kind of great. Why should we work more, you know, if we could have machines helping us? But I think the problem is the benefits are so uh, unevenly distributed now. You know, a lot of companies are making a lot of money for relatively few people, and workers are suffering in the form of job loss. You know, uh, I know it's not at all the way people think these days, but, but maybe we should just work a shorter work week, you know, and distribute those jobs. Or is there some other way that, that this fundamentally good thing, you know, um, will benefit us broadly instead of being something that we all fear and worry about. You know, am I going to lose my job? They're going to, you know, I'm a truck driver. Am I going to be out on the street because, you know, someone's going to come up with the, the driverless truck in the next two or three years? You know, so here's this great thing, and it, 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 it's turning into a source of fear and worry and possibly even impoverishment. So, so you know, I think we haven't grappled this with this, you know, as a society yet in the way we have to. And, of course, the wraparound to this is how some of these same issues were talked about, you know, in a different way, of course, but some of the core issues were talked about as factories started and as the Industrial Revolution came to be. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why it sort of uh, gets my goat when people talk about <laughs> a post-industrial society. We are still dealing with the same problem that hand you know, loom weavers faced in, in England in the 1840s when power looms came in, and these workers, to compete, had to lower and lower and lower the, the, the price that they charged for their services until they faced literal starvation. You know, uh, this problem of displacement, you know, having this wonderful new sign of human ingenuity ending up causing misery, we still confront that problem. So, you know, we, we need to come up with better solutions than some of the ones from the past. Joshua Freeman, his book is Behemoth, A History of the Factory and the Making of the Modern World. Joshua, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Hey, great conversation. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking. Thank you.